a top Iranian nuclear scientist, was assassinated in Iran on November 27th in a brazen murder? Was it Mossad or the CIA or both? We will talk about the killing and look at U.S.-Iran relations as Joe Biden prepares to ascend to the White House. Welcome to the December 3rd edition of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. U.S.-Iran relations after another targeted assassination of an Iranian leader is our subject on this episode of The Real Story. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Mohammed Morandi. Mohammed is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. We'll discuss U.S.-Iran relations. The Trump administration's brazen assassination of a top Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, brought the two countries to the brink of an all-out war at the beginning of this year. Now the assassination of a top Iranian nuclear scientist just last week has also ratcheted up tensions. But now a new administration is preparing to assume office in the White House. What will change? What will remain the same? Mohammed Morandi is our guest. Mohammed, welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. It's a great honor to have you. Mohammed, first of all, you are in Iran. Uh, let's just talk about what happened, uh, who was killed, and the reaction, the feeling, the sentiment of the Iranian people. Well, it's pretty obvious that uh, people are extremely outraged. If a senior government official in the United States or anywhere else in the world, was murdered by a foreign-backed terrorist act, uh, you would expect the same thing as what we're now seeing in Iran. The Israeli regime in the past carried out a number of assassinations, killing four Iranian scientists on different occasions during the Obama-Biden years. And uh, back then it was done with U.S. support. So this is not new. It comes at the end of the Trump regime, but it's still nothing new because this has happened during Obama. And that's important because Biden is, of course, uh, an extension. The Biden uh, administration will be seen as an extension of the Obama administration. What, in fact, happens now is that because of this act of war, Iran is speaking about retaliation. We already know from public information that the United States knew about the attack, was well informed, gave the green light, and was most probably involved because the Israelis don't have the capability to carry out such an attack without U.S. logistical support. So when we look at Trump's retweets, and the information that was given to the New York Times by American officials, it becomes pretty clear 
what happened and who was behind it. So now the Iranians are saying two things will have to happen. One is that in order to punish the United States and the Europeans, because the Europeans did not condemn the attack, they will decrease cooperation with the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they will also decrease their remaining commitments that are being carried out within the framework of the nuclear deal. Right now, the Europeans and the Americans are not abiding by any of their commitments, but the Iranians are still abiding by some of theirs. Those may come to an end pretty soon if Parliament pa has its way. Then there's the second element, and that is retaliation, which I believe will probably be lethal and directed against Israel. Mohammed, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of shocked. Well, not really shocked. Nothing's shocking at this point. But the, uh, the way the U.S. media has covered this targeted killing, and there's sort of a, a wink and a nod and an acceptance that, that the Trump administration gave the green light to it, that it was Mossad agents. Uh, there's less talk here in the media about the fact that the fact that you you asserted that it's actually not feasible that the Israelis could carry out such a huge uh, attack in, in the attack. The, and we'll describe the attack a little bit without the logistical support of the United States. Uh, but again, the, the headlines are really something. I'm, Iran's top nuclear scientist killed in ambush, state media say. That's the New York Times. The subhead. U.S. and Israeli intelligence describe the scientist as the force behind what they call Iran's covert push for nuclear weapons. So here you have this illegal, lawless, uh, criminal act, but the subtitle of the article gives the argument of, from U.S. and Israeli intelligence about why this killing might be, in fact, justified because the victim was, quote, the force behind what they call Iran's covert push for nuclear weapons. Yes, I think it's quite obvious that the New York Times and the Washington Post and other mainstream media outlets in the United States are not really very different from Trump in their worldview. And that's one reason why Biden previously said that if he becomes president, nothing much will change. While Trump is more crude and in certain ways less predictable, but the general foreign policy of the United States is continuous. It's, there's a policy of continuity and uh, it, is, um, uh, it is an empire that sees itself as exceptional and thus uh, breaking international law for the American government, for the political elites, is not a moral issue. It's not even a legal issue. It's a footnote. So, first of all, there is no evidence that Iran has ever pursued a nuclear weapon. There's never been such evidence. The IAEA has never produced uh, evidence to show this. These are Western accusations. And uh, despite the fact that the nuclear deal has been implemented and Iran's nuclear program has been uh, carefully monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency, there is still no evidence that Iran pursued a nuclear weapon. In addition to that, ever since the signing of the nuclear deal, 
Iran has limited the scope of its peaceful nuclear program anyway. But under these circumstances, we still see this murder, this act of terror take place. So there really isn't much of a difference between Biden and Trump for Iranians. We have to remember, as I said earlier, under Obama and Biden, four nuclear scientists were murdered in Iran separately. One was my colleague at the University of Tehran. He was a pro Dr. Mohammadi was a professor at my university. He was murdered under the Obama-Biden regime and through the Israelis. So there's no real change there. These uh, illegal attacks are not new. Second of all, the maximum pressure campaign by Trump, which was carried out to what he, which were, which he called brutal sanctions, they were meant to brutalize the Iranian people depriving them of even medicine and even the means to fight against the COVID virus. But these same sanctions were first implemented during Obama, and Obama called them crippling sanctions. In other words, Obama wanted to cripple the Iranian people. And of course, Biden was his vice president. And in addition to that, while Trump murdered General Soleimani, who was the key figure in the war against ISIS, the person who more than anyone else on this planet is responsible for defeating ISIS in Syria and Iraq. But under Obama, the dirty war in Syria began. Obama led this coalition of regimes like Erdogan in Turkey, Abdullah in Saudi Arabia, Netanyahu in Israel, and other oil-rich Arab dictatorships, all of them together helped create ISIS and strengthen Al-Qaeda and other extremist groups, groups like Jaysh al-Islam and Ahrar al-Sham to destroy so much of Syria. So the dirty war in Syria, the genocide in Yemen, the destruction of Libya all happened under Biden and, of course, Obama. So for Iran, there's no real difference between the two, and thus there are no expectations than what then that when Biden comes, somehow you're going to see a more benign uh, political regime in Washington and that that regime will start abiding by international law and respect human rights and stop targeting civilians. So as a result, Iran has no option but to defend itself and it will have no option but to retaliate and it will have no option but to form closer alliances with those forces that are similar to Iran, resisting U.S. hegemony and U.S. attempts to retain its global domination. Mohammed, regarding the situation, the complex political situation such that if Iranians have little or no expectation of a real change in policy between Biden and Trump, and if, in fact, these killings of top Iranian leaders like Soleimani or the, the top scientist, I don't know if he is the top scientist. Maybe you can describe his role, actually. But, um, you know, if, if Iran retaliates, the, the assumption is that this retaliation will then uh, make it impossible for Biden not to stand strong in defense of Israel or not to stand strong in defense of the United States. 
And instead of having a little honeymoon period and the beginning or the re-beginning of negotiations around the U.S. re-entering the JCPOA, and you know Biden has been sending, I would say, very mixed signals about that during the campaign because he's you know, suggesting new conditions that Iran has to do X, Y, and Z in order for the for the Biden administration to do what it says it wants to do, which is to come back to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal. But here's John John O. Brennan. Now he is the top intelligence official during the Obama administration. He tweeted, and there's a kind of little Twitter war between him and uh, Ted Cruz about this. But here's what John O. Brennan tweeted. Uh, This was November 27th, the day of the assassination. Quote, this was a criminal act and highly reckless. It risks lethal retaliation and a new round of regional conflict. Iranian leaders would be wise to wait for the return of responsible American leadership on the global stage and to resist the urge to respond against perceived culprits. So here's John Brennan saying, whoever did this is a criminal. That, of course, the implication being the Trump administration in concert with the Mossad, the Israeli government or its intelligence services. Uh, Again, speaking to the uninitiated, that sounds pretty good. But he says to the Iranians, don't retaliate, don't play the game, don't be suckered into a, a counter response because a responsible leader is coming. And then Ted Cruz uh, responds to John O'Brennan and writes in a a responsive tweet on November 27th, quote, it's bizarre to see a former head of the CIA consistently side with Iranian zealots who chant, quote, death to America, close quote, and reflexively condemn Israel. Does Joe Biden agree? Again, that's Ted Cruz responding to John O'Brennan. And then Brennan responds uh, defensively. He says, it is typical for you to mischaracterize my comment. Your lawless attitude and simple-minded approach to serious national security matters demonstrate that you are unworthy to represent the good people of Texas. Uh, Anyway, your comments, Mohammed. Well, I think there are a number of important points. One is you know, what we already discussed, and that is that what Trump has done to Iran and to this region is not very different from what Obama and Biden did. They're quite similar. And in many ways, Obama and Biden have done worse. Uh, But of course, Trump is unpredictable, and he's crude, and he's widely disliked, and I'm quite happy that he's gone. Uh, but that doesn't make Biden any more credible or any more humane. Iran is not going to rely on a, an enlightened Biden. Iran expects Biden to be the old Biden because he himself says nothing much will change. So the only way for Iran to protect itself is to show its antagonists that if they carry out an atrocity, if they carry out murder, if they carry out acts of terror, they will have to pay a price. But to rely on Biden to somehow rectify the situation would be quite foolish. So that's, that's out of the question. But regardless of the fact that we have very 
little confidence here in Iran about Biden implementing the nuclear deal in good faith. And there are very few people, I think, who believe Biden has seen the light. Iran will give him the chance to show if he's honest. All he has to do is reverse Trump's presidential decrees. It's not that difficult. He could do it in a day. And most of what Trump did would be reversed. Of course, there would still be more to do because the United States never implemented the nuclear deal. Under Obama and Biden, the United States did not implement the deal. They only partially implemented the deal, and they did that on purpose. Whereas Iran fulfilled its obligations in full. This time around, the Iranians are not going to accept some partial fulfillment. They will accept. They will only accept a complete and um, absolute uh, fulfillment of U.S. obligations in order for it to fully implement it, its side of the bargain. So Iran will give Biden that opportunity, but that is a separate file from this terror attack. This terror attack will get have it. We'll see a response. It will be a lethal response as well as a response with regards to Iran's commitments to the JCPOA and the International Atomic Energy Agency. And since right now the United States is not abiding by any of its commitments, and uh, neither are the Europeans, they have no reason to complain about that either. So these are two separate things. Iran's retaliation has nothing to do with Biden's uh, ability to uh, implement the nuclear deal. With regards to bringing about changes to the nuclear deal, people, neocons like Max Boot and others, they simply don't understand Iran. They think that through uh, brute force and through uh, killing ordinary people through sanctions and through creating misery that they can have their way. Iran is not Libya. Iran is not Bolivia. Iran is not Iraq. Iran is not Turkey. Iran is a very powerful country and it has a very determined population. So the smart thing would be for the United States to recognize that there will be no changes accepted in the nuclear deal in Tehran. I think, if you recall, we discussed this earlier on, on, on numerous occasions. I always said that Trump will not be able to force Iran to accept changes to the nuclear deal. And often when I said this in Western media, this was met with a lot of skepticism. But Trump is now going, and Iran didn't accept any changes. So there's no reason to believe Biden, who is taking power in the United States as the United States is facing an economic crisis, as the United States is facing an identity crisis, and as the United States is facing a COVID crisis. The United States, relatively speaking, is on the decline. There's no reason to believe that Iran which did not accept uh, Trump's demands and did not appease Trump, would now appease Biden. If Biden thinks that he can 
impose new conditions on Iran, he's badly mistaken. Because Trump failed to do that, and the United States is in a, is in a much more difficult situation today than it was a few years ago because of the internal divisions, because of the economic crisis, because of the COVID crisis, and because the United States is isolated internationally. So Iran didn't appease Trump, and Iran is not going to appease Biden. If Biden wants a solution, therefore, the smart thing would be for him to simply implement the nuclear deal in full. Mohammed, let's talk now about uh, the real core issue that has separated U.S., the United States from Iran. Iran had a revolution in 1979. It was uh, a people's revolution. It was massive in its character. It was a cross-class revolution. It had uh, different political uh, tendencies and trends coming together uh, to overthrow the despot, the monarch, the Shah. And the Shah was only there on the throne in Iran as a consequence of U.S. and, and British actions. That was, of course, the, the coup d'etat in uh, 1953 against the democratically elected government. Um, you know, I, I, when I talk to people here in the anti-war movement or I'm talking to students or people who are trying to get like a, an actual history of, of U.S. foreign policy that's not the dominant narrative, uh, I spent a lot of time on Iran because it's so revealing. It, the U.S. used the framework of containing communism as its Cold War uh, doctrine. But uh, the government in, in Iran that was elected in 1953, uh, it wasn't a communist government. It was a nationalist government. It dared to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, AIOC, which you know, we now know as BP or later became British Petroleum. Uh, it nationalized it and, and said, look, let's use those vast resources that are from Iran for Iranians to alleviate poverty in Iran, to help the country develop. And so the, the Americans, if, you, if people go back to 1951, 52, very deep sanctions against Iran, destabilizing the economy, creating a lot of political chaos, um, is causing a disillusionment with the with the government uh, for some sectors of the Iranian population, and then the the CIA and British intelligence move in. Thousands are killed. The Shah is restored. He he denationalizes the oil. Uh, it now becomes sort of a joint partnership between British and American oil companies. And after this bloody quote interference of the most dramatic type in Iran's politics to destroy an elected government, a non-communist elected government, the New York Times in 1954 wrote this in one of its editorials, quote, underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their number, which goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. Now, fanatical nationalism meant to nationalize the oil resources. Again, uh, all in the name of Cold War politics, anti-communism. But, you know, there, is, there was an ideological element of the Cold War, an anti-communist crusade. 
But again, all of these developing formerly colonized or semi-colonized countries that were taking control of their own land, labor, resources, uh, they, they were targeted all in the name of fighting for fighting against communism, but it really is just maintaining the colonial change. Anyway, let's talk. And, and again, I, the reason I quote this frequently is this is the liberal New York Times. This was not the far right. This wasn't the John Birch Society, et cetera, et cetera. That's not Barry Goldwater. This is the New York Times. Underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their numbers that goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. I want to talk about what the real essence is of U.S.-Iran relations, because it obviously doesn't start in 1979. It starts much earlier. Yes, I think that's a, a very good example. And in fact, Mossadegh was not a revolutionary. He was very pro-Western, and he was very naive about the United States. And to blame for the coup himself. But that's a different story. But by saying that he went berserk, that's very much a part of the Orientalist narrative. Anyone in the, the United States or the Europeans or to demand rights, abnormal if they're seen to be standing up to, in general, the West in this narrative is considered to be rational and reasonable and logical, whereas the non-Western world is emotional. So being going berserk is understandable in this narrative, in this context. So the same is true after the revolution in 1979. Uh, you know, the, the country went berserk. Extremists, you know, came to power. You know, these medieval uh, religious zealots were now in power, and th and that sort of nonsense. Whereas, uh, and the irony is, of course, uh, while for the last four decades Iran has been called a theocracy and you know medieval with these mad mullahs in power, it's the United States that has been funding extremists and forces like Al Qaeda and helping the rise of ISIS through their allies in Istanbul and Riyadh, as well as in Israel, as we saw in Afghanistan earlier, and more recently in Syria, and even in Iraq, and Lebanon, Yemen, and Libya. But that's, that's a different story. So while they themselves support these extremists, these dangerous extremists, they labeled Iran, which simply wanted sovereignty, it wanted independence, and it wanted to implement its own indigenous values in its own country. It was this Iran that was unacceptable. And it's this Iran that the United States has been trying to undermine for the last four decades. And the reason why they failed is because they are up against the general population. They're up against the, the people of Iran. And this is, of course, is another, this raises another interesting point. In the Western media, you regularly hear that Iran is corrupt. The regime, as they like to call it, is unpopular. It is imploding or it is exploding. It is on the verge of collapse. People hate the regime, again, 
you know, the word regime. But simultaneously, the narrative says that this is a growing threat to the world. It is a growing menace. It's a growing uh, danger to international peace and security. And of course, these two narratives are inconsistent. They're at odds with one another. How can you be a growing threat when you're collapsing, when you're corrupt and falling apart? You can't. You, it, it doesn't make sense. But since you are all acceptable within the framework of this inconsistent claims orientalist attitude. So, and the irony, of course, is that nowadays the same New York Times praises Mossadegh, but it attacks Iran today using the same sort of language, but in a more politically correct way that they used in 1953 and 1954 about Iran at that time. Mohammed, just a couple more quick questions. Uh, the the Trump administration went out of its way to impose very heavy threats and the threat of sanctions on any third party, including the other signatories to the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And that would include not only Russia and China, but Britain, France, and Germany. And as a consequence, the the well, let me say this. The object was to strangle Iran's economy and, and particularly its ability to sell oil. And the Trump administration openly used the most extreme bullying tactics against those who disagreed with its policy, including the signatories to the treaty. Uh, and of course, there's a, a sharp distinction that can be made between how China and Russia reacted versus Britain and France and Germany. But in terms of your own expectation or the expectation of, of people in Iran, will there, even absent any formal lifting of sanctions, be any more space uh, that, will, that you anticipate for trade for Iran with the rest of the world? That's one question. And then the second question is, what, what are the strategic or who are the strategic allies of Iran uh, regionally and, and internationally. Like, for instance, we could see that Iran was going out of its way to provide petroleum products for Venezuela, for instance, which, was, which had been in turn strangled or attempted to be strangled by the U.S. sanctions. But let's just talk about who are the principal allies to for Iran going forward. So it's really those two questions. Will there be any sort of easing up of sanctions, even without a formal change in U.S. policy? And then where and how does Iran view its own, its own position in the, in the global arena, say, in the next year or two? Well, I think already the sanctions regime is weakening. Iran's oil exports have risen dramatically over the last few months. And, uh, you know, different countries and businesses are finding ways to purchase Iranian oil and to deal with Iran, despite the United States. And uh, the discounts have been decreasing in, uh, for purchasers, for those who are purchasing Iranian oil. So already, uh, you know, the, the, the Trump maximum pressure campaign is failing. Second of all, when Biden comes to power, it will already be seen by much of the world as a failure of Trump. And that will 
and has already created an incentive for people to work even more closely with Iran. And since Biden himself has created this image that he is the anti-Trump, just like Trump is the anti-Obama, it will also enhance that feeling that countries, uh, or it will, it, will, it will increase their confidence among, uh, in, among world leaders to, and, and businesses to work with Iran. So I think that already this uh, policy has failed and that uh, the uh, changes taking place in the United States will further that. And probably Biden himself will remove some sanctions. I don't know how serious they will be, but you know he has to create this image that he is not Trump. So uh, he will probably do some small, make some small changes. If he makes big changes, you know, so much the better. But I do think that uh, the, the tide has turned against the United States, and this goes along the United States government. And this, you know, is, you know, as I said earlier, is simultaneous with the fact that the United States is facing multiple crises at home, economic, you know, the identity issue, the divide in the country, and the coronavirus and its international isolation. This is going to make it difficult for the United States to continue down this same road. But, you know, we have to keep in mind, again, that the whole maximum pressure campaign was something that Obama began, and Biden was his vice president. Obama imposed these sanctions. Obama directed them towards third countries as well, those secondary sanctions which, would, uh, which targeted countries that wanted to do business with Iran. So we can't say that this is just some sort of evil act that was initiated by Trump targeting Iranian women and children. This was something that Obama began and Biden was a part of. But, um, so I, th I think that Iran's um, position economically will be strengthened. Iran's alliances will also grow stronger. Uh, Iran's allies are in the global south. Uh, as you mentioned, Venezuela, Bolivia. The Iranian foreign minister traveled to Bolivia for the ceremony that was uh, take that took place for the new elected government that uh, replaced the pro-Western coup regime, and um, of course Cuba, Syria, and other countries that are facing the wrath of the United States. And Iran has very good relations with most of its neighboring countries, and but also with regards to major powers like Russia and China. Uh, the, the views of Iran, China, and Russia are converging. And I think that has a lot to do with the behavior of the United States itself. The United States, by antagonizing Russia, has pushed Russia towards Iran and China. By antagonizing China, the United States has pushed China towards Russia and Iran. And by antagonizing Iran, they have pushed Iran closer to China and Russia as well. So I believe that this convergence of interests will continue especially as the United States has become more isolated, there will be more opportunities. And if Biden is smart, uh, what he will try to do is try to behave more reasonably towards all three of these countries. But um, 
I'm, I, I don't think anyone in Tehran has any great expectations. We're going to leave it right there. We were joined by our guest, Mohamed Morandi. Mohamed is an expert on American studies and post-colonial literature. He teaches at the University of Tehran. You can follow him on Twitter at S underscore M underscore Morandi, and that's M-A-R-A-N-D-I. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.